I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Um, How are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay. <laughs> okay. I always say I'm okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm mentally ill, but I'm okay. Um, so we're just going to start with, we reviewed the film Red, White, and Royal Blue. Oh, we're starting with that. Yeah. And people did not like that we didn't like it (laughs) i deleted so many comments (laughs) people just mad 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 so you prepared a statement which i'm nervous about because i don't know what you wrote i did this uh on my own because i only read like two or three of those little comments uh and you know every time that in my life that i've heavily criticized um something predominantly white and gay I, I often get a lot of feedback from older white gay men that say they don't appreciate my cynicism etc etc uh, so I only read a couple of those and then I, I thought maybe I should just write more of a, a manifesto about how I feel about films like this well I'll save my commentary until after so go ahead <laughs> okay <laughs> Um, well, a whole generation of dead gay men don't deserve heteronormative assimilation claptrap. Rom-com formula is toxic for straight people, so why do we want to copy their mistakes? Realism doesn't mean peddling miserabilism. It means we deserve authentic representation of our lives, loves, and relationships. There is no Prince Charming. There is the reality of a loving, committed relationship that isn't based on controlling bodies, genders, emotions, or pleasure, and the reality of those relationships, whether heterosexual or homosexual or polyamorous or codependent or plain old stable, are defined by a spectrum of emotionality deserving of representative complexity. Do we deserve escapism? Yes. Is escapism above analysis or critique? No. I reject celebrating art purely crafted through good intention. This path, as we all know, leads to self-destruction and cultural annihilation. I'm disappointed at the generational and racial disparities in my community who are resilient, who are survivors, and still desire to sit at a table still wet from the blood of our people. I don't want a seat at this table. I want a brand new table, recycled from the broken artifact we should be focused on destroying, not upholding. Red, white, and royal blue is the kind of mind-numbing fodder designed to placate our innate desire for acceptance and respect. Therefore, I cannot respect it. Well, there you have it. Uh, Okay. Um, I I need to wrap my mind around so many things, but so a lot of the comments I deleted were from ladies. So I'll get, so I'll get to that. But I think first and foremost, because there were comments about like, I like people who've loved, loved our channel, but this was like the final straw. And oh. it's like all the crazy shit I've said, and this was the final straw. And I thought I was trying to be nice because at the end of the video, I do say I can see how people would think this is cute. So there's that. But maybe I'll start with that. Mm. I'm tired of being referred to as cute. I'm tired of people telling me like, oh, you boys are cute. I am a 44-year-old man. I am grown and sexy. I'm educated. I have a career. I do a lot of things. I'm not cute and I'm not a boy. And I think... I don't care for movies like this. First of all, the shit isn't that funny. Like it's 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 not sending me anywhere except that there are two very good looking men in it. And I'm not in that stage of my life yet where that's enough. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so I just didn't like the shit. And 
like we have a YouTube channel where we just talk about how we feel about movies. So that's all I was doing is saying that I really didn't care for it and it didn't seem that realistic to me. Then I'm probably gonna be all over the place, but I understand that a lot of women like, I mean, I would almost classify this as like man on man erotica kind of. Mm -hmm. Sure. For various reasons, right? And I've watched a documentary about this topic, which then caused me to read more about it. This was a couple of years. I think we were still in our old house when I watched this, but I can see why a lot of women like stories like this because they're not period. I'm just going to say that. So I'm not trying to diminish like if people like the stories, just like they like Twilight and all the other things, right? Like if you like it, you like it. That's fine. I didn't. But I also feel like stories like this are dangerous because that's not reality. Mm -hmm. It's like, like you said, there is no Prince Charming. These men are exceptionally attractive they have extraordinary lot like the depictions of their lives are extraordinary like none of us have lives like this none of us are going to be in these situations so as a fantasy as something that's cute and you can like it but i i think the comment that bothers me the most is that you're taking it too seriously and it's just like well so not <laughs> See, but that's the problem. The whole problem with where we are in the world right now is not taking things too seriously. It's There's not something that gets a pass, a serious pass, because it's presented as uh, in a certain way. Like, I have a mind, I have a brain. Right, and I can, and, and I can, this, like, I can separate something being dumb as hell, but I still like it. Correct. Yep. Yeah. And there are a lot of movies that are dumb as hell, and I still like it. What's that movie with Lindsay Lohan? The, the holiday movie. What was that called? Oh God, C Christmas something. <laughs> Whatever that oh, movie please. was, people were so mad that we didn't like it. And it's like it's okay for you to love it if you're a 37 year old gay man who's obsessed with Lindsay Lohan, and you just think this is the best movie of the year. That shit is crazy. You can it can be your favorite movie. You can love it all day, all night. But that is not a well-made movie. No, and instead of uh, getting mad at people for not liking it, what you should be doing is um, coming up with your own definitive statements born out of uh, the curated facts and figures so that you have a defense. You have a hypothesis that the Lindsay Lohan movie, uh, Falling for Christmas, it, for instance, is the, Falling best, for Christmas, yeah. is the best film of the past decade. But then why? Well, but I mean, you can love it. It's fine. And I hate the phrase, I don't want, like, don't yuck someone's yum. And they use that phrase in Red, White, and Royal Blue. Sure but do. I'm not trying to yuck anyone's yum. You can like this movie a lot. It can be your favorite movie. I just, from my perspective, since I talk about movies all the time, from my perspective, to me, it didn't give me what I needed. It didn't feel realistic. But and I feel like what you mentioned in the review which is like something that's sort of made to appeal to a certain audience that maybe isn't the subject audience. So maybe uh, like this was made, you know, because the, the book is made by a, 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 like by a woman, a young woman. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's something that maybe like it would appeal to women. 
But I'm a middle-aged faggot. So to me, the shit just felt fake. It's like these two, because then we got a lot of comments. Again, I deleted a lot of comments, but it was like me um, saying that his mom is like a liberal female president with a gay son. And it's like the erasure, like I'm trying to erase bisexuality. And it's like, Oh, that's right. Cause he is, he is. I don't not believe in bisexuality. I misspoke if his character, I mean, he does say he's bisexual, so I shouldn't have said he's gay if, if he doesn't identify that way, but either way, it's like the way these men were acting in this movie and the things they were doing didn't make sense with like, to me as a gay man, this shit didn't make sense, but you can still like it. You can think they're cute and sweet and people are, are writing like it's the greatest love story. And oh, I mean, I just no. don't, I don't see it. So if you don't like me because I don't think that red, white and royal blue is a love story for the ages, then I mean, I don't know what to say. I also, <laughs> I, I highly resent being pushed back into a corner that just because something is queer or queer oriented or, or, you know, supposedly crafted for my consumption, that that means that I'm supposed to sit back and like it. Like bros. I don't know how many, back when that came out, like gay men at the bar being like, well, we have to support it because it's gay. Sure. I, I, not, I don't think that what's his name, Billy Eichner shouldn't, you know, be allowed to make films I, I who just i see at the gym now often <laughs> i just don't think that this one that he did is very good uh and it's okay to say that it's okay to not like things it's <laughs> i yeah the the two biggest things that are bothering me about this is like oh i'm being too critical it's like well like if i if i want a hamburger and i go get a hamburger and it's like a shitty ass hamburger i feel like i should be able to say like this is not what i wanted like I could have had a better burger, but I all, but then I think the critique is like, well, you're going to McDonald's expecting gourmet. No, I, I, I know that I'm not getting gourmet, but I can still say that cause I will go get a McDonald's cheeseburger, but I will also say that that thing tastes like plastic. Mm -hmm. So I'm acknowledging that I really like McDonald's cheeseburgers every now and then, but that the shit doesn't even taste like real food. Mm -hmm. So that's how I feel about this movie red, white, and royal blue. But like you can find it uh, appealing, but it's also not like a well-told, like it's not a great script. It looks cheap, whatever. But then the other thing that's bothering me is I feel like a lot of people who are not gay men refer to gay men. So like, you know, I know a lot of women listen to us, but just to be honest, I don't like being told I'm cute. I don't like being called a boy. I'm not a boy. I'm a grown ass man. Like I have a real life with real accomplishments. And I feel like stories like this that make gay men seem cutesy and flawless. And, you know, they're always so shiny and perfect and perfect bodies and perfect teeth. And they're well-dressed and like, that's not reality. It's, all, <laughs> it's, it's like movies about teenagers. Like these children, these children out here are gutter and uh and they always have been but we don't <laughs> we don't we don't want to be realistic about how humans in any kind of uh group or setting really are behaving but i think what's most disappointing is i've gone in way harder on other films mm -hmm. so the fact that people are upset about this one it's like i wasn't even that mean about it i just 
felt like it didn't feel realistic. And there were other aspects of the story that were more interesting. And also like the political climate yes. they're in and how this get, this queer bisexual son is affecting the, fem the, the first female president's campaign. That was very interesting. Or the fact that Prince Henry it, being part of the monarchy is having a harder time coming out. Why didn't we focus more on that? Mm -hmm. Why do we spend so much time with the kid who could very easily come out? Mm -hmm. That's what, that was my main criticism. I didn't say they were bad actors. I didn't say, I don't even think I said the shit wasn't funny. I, I'm saying that now that I didn't think it was that funny, but <laughs> anyway, uh, we've spent a very long time. Why, why do you want everybody to think the same about something either? That that's supposed to be the point of it. You want to, we all have our own unique perspectives and, and, and baggage, you know, frankly, that we bring to uh, the examination of anything. Like why? Is it, it the disappointment of not agreeing should be a joyful experience that I think we've really lost out on. And I also side note about bisexuality with the age that these men are supposed to be. Uh, the It's also a common trope and a common reality for a lot of gay men that when we came out, especially gay men of a certain age, we did that whole uh, bisexual step. And it was a way to uh, dip your toe into coming out and also, and, and allowing your loved ones, usually family members to be like, Hey, I could still maybe have kids one day. Cause I still like women to me. That is, that is a move that I've seen countless times and did myself when I was 18, you know, so it's not erasing bisexuality. It's also having the awareness that this kid might just be saying this because this is the first time that he's had this conversation with his mother. And there is a whole uh, complex structure that, uh, frankly, if you're not part of the community, uh, I don't know why you're weighing in. <laughs> well, also, the book spends more time because apparently Zora, that character in the book, is like represented more as like a very close friend and they used to be romantically linked. Mm-hmm. So it's like if they really wanted to highlight his sexuality in that way, then they should have shown that he had a relationship with this woman. They just kind of mentioned it fleetingly, like, yeah. oh, I've been with women. That's I, I, I haven't read the book. That's right. I forgot that that, brought, uh, that was brought up after our review. And yeah, they, this is if anybody should be mad about the erasure of bisexuality, it is this film adaptation, which just plops in there. Uma Thurman gets a line about how the B isn't silent in LGBT. So then this So then why didn't we show this young man having a relationship with a woman as well? And maybe the complexity of that and but anyway. Which means this film is just giving lip service to a community that it really has no intention on serving. It's not that serious to me. I I I was just giving my opinion on a movie streaming on Amazon Prime that we had received comments about like us reviewing it. Mm -hmm. So it's it's unfortunate that it turned into Oh, people well, being upset and I, you know it's a good joust is entertaining though because too. i also say that i appreciate stories like this like of course i want to see more queer content of course there are people of color in the film who are cast uh there's a trans woman playing mm -hmm. a secret service agent love all of that i just wanted a more realistic story that doesn't feel like it also feels ya but like mature which to me feels weird it feels very john benet ramsey to me like mm -hmm. why are we doing that why, why are we doing it this way and why do people like that that's not reality uh, again and so the, you know these they have a conversation about like bottoming and then it's like they don't they don't even use the word they just sort of say they're not quite sure and then we see that clearly they're having penetrative sex and it's like 
this shit doesn't go down like that i'm sorry uh, no uh it's it, it sure doesn't that's how i feel about brokeback mountain you know like it just maybe more like if we really want to but but again the intended audience maybe doesn't like that so then it's like this sanitized version of something that i don't want to be associated with i don't like being treated like the gays in those kind of movies no. i'm not a cutesy boy who likes to decorate i don't want to go shopping with you and hear about i know i talk about beauty a lot but it's because i'm a beauty professional i don't want to do anyone's hair i don't want to talk about hair outside of me being recorded like and you know the term boy which uh takes on different dimensions obviously for uh queer men of color when people do that but i find that's st still kind of a, a thing that the gays do that use that terminology yeah yeah which is interesting i could go on and on about that but, but i mean you know again these i understand the resentment and the bitterness about uh having to grow up and not seeing ourselves any reflected anywhere and being fed these stupid formulas from these mainstream movies but that doesn't mean that the answer is just getting to do the same thing like let's do something more interesting and different we should move on uh so i'm gonna make a hard transition to did have you seen the september um issue of vogue the cover is there somebody i like on it well it's like uh it's uh 490 supermodels so cindy oh. crawford naomi campbell christy turlington and linda evangelista are on the cover i'm sure they all still look really good oh yeah i mean yeah it's it's crazy and you know of course the promo images that are coming out are super airbrushed which is unfortunate because there are a lot of behind the scenes videos of them talking and i think they look so much better mm -hmm. not touched up like cindy crawford you know has i mean they all i mean except for naomi campbell who's like probably plastic by now who's stunning but they all look so much better without being retouched in my opinion but i'm bringing this up because yesterday i went to my preferred Starbucks on sunset mm -hmm. and I got there and then placed my mobile order. So I was just sitting waiting and Rachel Hunter walked in. Do you remember who Rachel Hunter is? She used to be married to Rod Stewart. She was a supermodel. Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. So she walks in and I immediately recognized her. Speaking of bisexuals. And then there were two um, older uh, homosexuals sitting like kind of near me and they knew her. Oh, okay. So they're like, Rach. And she's mm -hmm. like, Hey, and she's with her dog and they're like and, and they're just being extra like talk to us about the cover and she's like well what do you want me to say and they're like well they got it wrong why aren't you on the cover and then she starts ranting about how they should have had her on there and no one appreciates her oh you held on to this nugget okay well i was saving it for the podcast but i was just sitting there eating it all up mm -hmm. and you know it's gonna sound shady but you know i do have to point out that because she's the same age as these women, like in her mid fifties, mm -hmm. she didn't hold on the way these four ladies did. So I don't. Maybe they didn't ask you, girl. Because I mean, <laughs> she's a beautiful woman, but she looks like a a regular fifty four year old lady who who's beautiful, but like, you know, these women, I mean, probably still fit into sample sizes. She wouldn't. I mean, it just wouldn't match the other four. So is it like Rachel Dratch getting mad that the rest of the SNL women were offered like that erotic 
Christmas promo. No, or Rachel Hunter looks great, but it's just like she's not in she's not in the same category today as these four sure, women on the sure. cover. But these two homosexuals telling her like she was robbed is like, uh, yeah. See, blowing smoke up her ass. Yeah, <laughs> I I prefer authenticity. Just and and you know, there's something about if you don't have to. to just people you know personally if you don't have nothing something nice to say don't say anything at all but uh yeah there was a question someone wanted to know if you can cite some good examples of satire and film and i don't recall the context i think we were reviewing a f- i it, it may have been a premiere that i was doing for a movie and i think you mentioned that whatever film it was wasn't a great example of satire so oh. then what, well what are some examples of Good satire. I mean, late period, uh, well, almost any period, really, of Louis Bunuel, I think. Uh, Exterminating Angel, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, uh, the one about uh, the the Phantom of Liberty. Like, those are really fun and odd. Uh, Ridiana, uh, which is lambasting the Catholic Church. So, you know, that's up my alley. Uh, (laughs) Bunuel, I think the 70s, the new American cinema movement, you see a lot of fantastic filmmakers uh, you know, Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, of course. Network has to be one of the greatest satires, I think, ever. Mm. Spike Lee's Bamboozled. Um, I think recent... Oh, Yorgos Lanthimos recently, even though I think he's heavily borrowing from uh, tours that came before. I, I think that he clearly is interested in a satirical uh, element in all of his films. Uh, who else recently? Oh, uh, Ruben Ostland, I think. I... Uh, while I understand that he's highly grading to some people, I think there is enjoyment in watching his satires like The Square or Triangle of Sadness, you know. Okay, I think that's a good list to start with. Um, let's take a break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Films released we didn't cover, Jewels. Um, yes, you passed on this a sci-fi alien thing with Ben Kingsley, directed by Mark Turtletob. Oh, yeah, you didn't want to watch it. Aporia. Uh, you also pa- you did a hard pass on this weeks ago because uh, it stars Judy Greer. Also, a sci-fi element to it, it's directed by Jared Mosh. A hard pass. You did. You're like, oh no. Which I like Judy Greer, but again. The Eternal Memory, the Joseph uh, Robinson story. Well, it's a documentary about Alzheimer's. Uh, oh, so it Mita is the Joseph Robinson. The Eternal Memory uh, that was downloaded and, and uh, depleted somewhere. <laughs> oh, depleted, that's all you have deleted. to say? No, I mean, I, I don't want to uh, trigger you or make you feel uh, like there's something wrong. It's just, it is what it is. Well, you've already done that. It's like double jeopardy at this point. Double jeopardy, Ashley Judd. Okay. You've already been convicted of that. A movie called Inside Man came well, out. Double jeopardy. Wouldn't I have been exonerated? And That's I, what I mean. So that you might as well just keep going. because I might as well just uh, ruthlessly, mercilessly disparage your... I've already tolerated the abuse. So oh, abuse. I'm broken. Okay. Let's not gaslight now. Oh. Triggered, triggered, triggered. 
Wow. <laughs> Inside man. Uh, this looks terrible, but it's based on a true story. Start. You should look up the poster for this. Emil Hirsch looks uh, transformed for, for me, but somebody named Danny A. Abacazar directed this. It looks... Oh, Emil Hirsch looks like what? What happened? Yeah, what did they? Do? It's so I, I I know this is a podcast, but I'm looking at the poster for Inside Man, and on the cover it looks like Emil Hirsch and a lady, Lucy Hale, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know who this is, um, but we see Emil Hirsch's profile, and the way the lighting, like the the shadowing, makes it look like. You know what he looks like? He just had dental work and his mouth is filled with cotton balls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. <laughs> and also why there is a very good film directed by Spike Lee called Inside Man. Must we use this title? I don't know. That irritates me. They could have called it Inside Person. Insider Person. Insider Human. <laughs> <laughs> anything? Anything original and new that hasn't been said before? Because we have a lot of words. <laughs> Next, King Cole. Uh, this is a documentary uh, set in Appalachia, I think, through the eyes of a coal miner's daughter, uh, directed by Elaine McMillan Sheldon. Love in Taipei. Uh, Arvin Chen, who uh, has directed a couple things. The only one I've seen is 2013's Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, which I remember really uh, finding sweet and, and enjoyable. Operation Napoleon. Uh, Operation uh, Napoleon. Uh, this is sounds like an interesting thriller. I think from an Icelandic director, Oscar Thor Axelson. Uh, somewhere over there, uh, I would I, in, a, in, a, in a slower week, I would have seen us reviewing this. Oh, sorry, I'm delayed because I'm trying to find a. Oh, I think I found it. I'm trying to find a movie. Oh. Uh, Lastly, the pod generation. Also, I would have assumed on a slower week we would have done this too. But this premiered at Sundance. Um, I think it it won some award, starring Amelia Clark, who I'm not crazy for, and Shuatel Ejiofor, and uh, directed by Sophie Bartz. Also, a uh, sci-fi element to this film. All right, you have a project of interest, Motel Destino. Yeah, well, I don't know. If I, have I gotten tired of Karim Anuz? He's a queer Brazilian director. I think was uh, I like films towards the beginning of his career more than he just did his English language debut, Firebrand, which I did not like. That competed at Cannes with uh, Alicia Vikander as Catherine Parr and Jude Law as Henry VIII. I just thought that was a, and I read the book that it's based on, which was also the that. Uh, what, what's the word for it? Historical romantic fiction. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Ooh, I don't think that's the genre for me, the genre. Uh, but he's got a new film that he's already lined up. So good for him. Um, it could be good. I, I'm holding out, I guess. All right. Movies we watched for fun. So I watched a film called Adrift. It's a 2017 film. It's a Spanish language movie. So the Spanish language title is Perdidos, which means lost, but. Potato, potato. But I think I've discovered a new guilty pleasure. Um, so when people ask, I, we need, I need to remember that this is a guilty pleasure of mine is to find like suspense films or horror films in other languages, not English, 
that look like they're going to be bad movies mm -hmm. and then watch them with the English dubbing. Oh, no. Uh, oh, my God. Y'all need to look up Adrift, A-D-R-I-F-T. It's a 2017 film directed by Sergio Graciano mm -hmm. and put that shit with the English dubbing. I was howling, uh -huh. howling. And it's so basic because remember the movie Open Water? Mm -hmm. And then there's Open Water 2 mm -hmm. with uh, McDreamy. And Open Water 2 is Patrick called... Patrick Dempsey's in no, Open Water 2? No, oh. sorry. Eric Dane. Wasn't he called... Oh, McSteamy? Grey's Anatomy 2? Yeah. I thought Who I used to see all the time when I worked in on Sunset. I thought but... Dempsey was the one they called that, but whatever. No, well, I, I think you're right, but they also called Eric Dane something. Isn't Eric Dane and wasn't oh Grey's my God. Anatomy? Yeah, right. I you know I have never watched one episode of that show. He was Doctor Mark Sloan, but what did they call him? Anyway, what's his moniker? Open Water Two is also called Adrift, mm -hmm. and then there's a 2018 film starring Shailene Woodley called Adrift, and they all have very similar plots. So the one I watched is the same plot as Open Water Two, which is a group of friends are on this yacht. And they all go for a dive in the middle of the ocean and forget to lower the ladder. Mm -hmm. And then the entire movie is them trying to figure out how to get back on the boat. They are literally adrift. And they do. But this one, the 2017 one, the story itself, like the ending, is ridiculous. And then watching it with the English, oh, God. it was, I was so highly entertained. But that's what makes a lot of those 70s Italian films fun because they're all dub especially the giallos where they dub them yes. over in english or killer nun yeah i can't imagine watching killer nun now in the original yeah yeah no but this i mean but those have a texture to them that it all feels very it, it kind of works it kind of works but no this is <laughs> it was a hoot okay uh you watched a room with a view yeah because i read the book by ian forster and uh that was based on you know julianne sands Julian Julian Sands is dead, uh, and I probably would have picked this when we were trying to celebrate his memory. Uh, but I hadn't ever read the book, and it's something I always wanted to read. So I, I read it and watched James Ivory's film, which was uh, multi-Oscar nominated. It's got a very young Helena Bonham Carter as the lead. I thought Maggie Smith, who was Oscar nominated in this, was quite good. I also like Julian Sands in it and uh, Denholm Elliott. Uh, yeah. Oh, and uh, Daniel Day Lewis. You watched Health? Yeah, this movie is oddly still unavailable, I think, because of music rights issues. But this, it's a 1980 Robert Altman film, and it was kind of, um, and it was, I think both that and Popeye came out for him, and they were both, not. neither of them were hits, and it kind of was, uh, he had a hard time in the 80s, I think, especially based on his run of the 70s that started with M.A.S.H., uh, but uh, talking of satire, Altman's a great satirist. Uh, the, the player I think is at the top of, uh, his capabilities there, but this is interesting and has a, a trio of women that I, I also really like, including Glenda Jackson, who has also just passed, uh, and Lauren Bacall, I thought was entertaining and Carol, Bur Carol Burnett, all three of them, I think have funny moments in this. Um, uh, although I prefer Carol Burnett in his earlier film, uh, a wedding. Mm hmm. You watched The Kane Mutiny? Yeah, funnily enough, uh, I've never seen it. Edward Dimitrik's film with Humphrey Bogart uh, <laughs> as 
I mean, I've worked for people that act like him. So it was uh, talking about triggered. Uh, it, it was a little dry, I thought, but I was watching it in anticipation because William Friedkin has a new film that's going to be in Venice, uh, the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, which is based on a portion of the Kane Mutiny uh, in the book. And Robert Altman ha had made an earlier 1980s film version as well that I still want to watch. But that anyway, so I watched that and then a day later learned he died. <laughs> Freaking. We watched the 2004 action film Blast, oh. starring Eddie Griffin, Brecken Meyer, Vivica Fox, Shaggy's in it. Shaggy. Vinnie Jones. Mm -hmm. uh, this was such an odd movie because it had a budget. It it did. I don't know who they were thinking this was for or why then. It's horrible. It's, it's, <laughs> it's horrible. It's bad. They spent all that money for this oh, whole shitty to, ass movie. We need to spend a minute talking about this movie. Actually, it's because it, like Celine sings, it's all coming back to me. He is ex Eddie Griffin's playing an ex firefighter. Oh no no no! Eddie Griffin was a Navy SEAL. A Navy SEAL. Okay. And yeah. he had a buddy, a white guy. Mm-hmm. And then the white guy died and he promised to, no, no. Then after they were done in being Navy SEALs, they became firefighters and his buddy, like his best friend died in action as a firefighter. Oh yeah. Okay. So he promised to take care of their son or his, their son, his friend's son. Eddie's character is not gay. Um, and so the opening of the film is Eddie Griffin raising this little white boy Oh my God. With some of the worst child acting. That child's voice is not unlike, do you remember when we watched House by the Cemetery? Speaking of dubbing, the Lucio Fulci film. With yes, I do remember. <laughs> I, I do remember that movie. The kid sounds not unlike that. Because House by the Cemetery, the DVD you have, or the Blu-ray, there's some extra bonus features and that little kid is in it. He turned into a handsome man. Yeah. But hearing him talk about it was cute because he's very proud of it. <laughs> so that was very charming. Yeah. I really like Brecken Meyer, but that's not enough. I also really like Vivica Fox. Oh, of course. But she's but... playing an FBI agent and it it she has so much dialogue and then the ADR, it almost sounds like she was just reading it. Probably. Like she she couldn't even memorize I, I don't like, know. Like Eric Roberts in that movie where he voices the cat. Yeah, well, that's next level. <laughs> that's no, her mouth is moving, but it's just the 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 ADR is bad for her in particular and the little boy. Um, but I, th I think you had a good comment when we were watching it because there's a tender moment between Eddie Griffin and this little white boy. And you're like, how did th he not think this was ridiculous? Well, Eddie Griffin's comedy uh, is, I don't know, he says some things I do not agree with. But uh, so I find it very funny that he would think this story is something that he would do. Also, uh, <laughs> to take on this white man's son and raise him, it's like, how close were you with this man? And the son immediately is like, you're not my dad. Oh, yeah. You can't make me go to school. Chill. But he's like his guardian. Like, it's yes. on paper, so he can't just leave his ass. But I would have taken him to the... He's a firefighter, ex-firefighter. He knows you can drop kids off. Mm -hmm. I would have dropped the little boy off at the fire station. I mean, you know, rest in peace, uh, but I can't be settled with this child. You watched a movie that I watched a little bit of called La Lombada, <laughs> <laughs> starring the lady from... Uh, the hot chick, Melora Hardin. But she, no, she's in a more recent movie we talked about. She is? Yes. I mean, she's been around for... Well, here, I'm going to look it up. You uh, talk about Lombada. Okay, so this is directed by... It's an exploitation film, uh, a series that uh, films 
directed by Joel Silberg. This man cannot direct a movie for his life. I think the first Break-In has some charm. Break-In 2 Electric Boogaloo is straight up trash. And Rappin' is egregious. It's egregious. Uh, and and then he did this, um, Lombada in 1990. It feels older than that. Bringing back Shabadoo, making him do the same thing and sidelining him that he did in the two Break-In films. Uh, obsessed with this white girl. I mean, Melora Hardin's only in her early 20s here. Okay, I'll interrupt you. We watched Melora. We reviewed a movie uh, called Clock, where she's the doctor doing the fertility. That's right, yes. Yeah, with that, and she was. I think she's on my worst hair list for 2023, mm-hmm. actually, for that role. I forgot about Clock. Anyway, uh, Lombada. Lombada. So she is obsessed with her sexy, sexy math teacher, played by... Who is... Go Go ahead. <laughs> He is, he was supposedly, he's supposedly Mexican. His birth name's Carlos Gutierrez, we're told several times, but he's known by another name that I'm forgetting now because his parents came to the U.S. and died and he was adopted and I guess raised his J. Wife. Eddie Peck. Oh my God. Who's very good looking, does not look Latino. Not one bit. And Melora Hardin is his student. Yes. And they look, she looks older than he does. She's... <laughs> She is style. She's got that Katie Couric. I'm a businesswoman hairdo. On, on television hairdo. Uh, it, but it's just funny because I I think she's uh, always beautiful, but she's, always she's gorgeous. Always seemed a little older than who she was, which is why in the hot chick, which we for some reason just rewatched, uh, she's Rachel McAdams' mom, and she's only 11 years older. She's trying to seduce this teacher who's moonlighting. Okay, what I do remember from this movie is. Hunky J. Eddie Peck is this teacher. He goes to these like warehouse dance rave competitions to scout these dumbass kids to get them their GEDs. Yeah, and he takes them to the high school. So he rounds these kids up and then brings them back to the high school late at night to help them study to take the GED. You know these children are on drugs. And Do you know how illegal that is? One, it's illegal. Two, these people are hopped up if they're up that late. And then all the while, Melora Harding is trying to seduce this teacher. She's sexually harassing him. Oh, it's outrageous. Because he's married and and his wife's all mad because she's like, I never see you. You you teach all day and then you go dance and teach kids. And then he wonders, I mean, he is like very good looking and like he's at this dance thing, like shirtless, Mm -hmm. like straddling a bike and then wondering why these young girls are like obsessed with him. It's so crazy. And then there's another subplot because he's the only teacher who's getting results uh, amongst his students because (laughs) (laughs) like okay it it is so stupid uh but i guess entertaining we watched the series the hatchet wielding height wait the hatchet no it it was a documentary yeah just one the hatchet wielding hitchhiker um someone had asked us about it so we put it on, but it's about this um, guy who went viral. What, like, what is it? What year was that? What year was it? Ten or eleven? Two thousand ten or eleven? Something. Um, Kai Lawrence. He went viral uh, for giving an interview after this man. It was reported it was a, a hate crime that this man tried to run over this black man who's a construction worker. And he, while he was approaching him, shouting the N-word and saying that he was Jesus Christ. 
And in the passenger seat was this guy, Kai Lawrence. So the this guy runs into this construction worker and then there's a woman trying to assist and the driver like attacks her. So this guy, Kai Lawrence, who's in the the passenger seat, he stops the attack by hitting the driver in the back of the head with a hatchet that he had like on his person. Mm -hmm. So then this news reporter, Jessup Reisbach, who is so like, you know what he feels like? What's that movie with Sigourney Weaver and David Duchovny? The TV set. The TV set. It feels very that. Like, mm -hmm. he's just like, this is my time to shine. I was speaking of satire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we find out that maybe, so Kai Lawrence goes viral because the interview goes viral. But there are questions as to the circumstances of that incident. Like, maybe Kai had drugged that man. And so that's why he was, well, they, they, and then maybe Kai was telling him, I bet you won't hit him. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, I don't think the documentary is very good because I think the actual murder that we know he committed was this older, respected lawyer of some community somewhere on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And Kai kills him. He gets convicted, gets like 45 years, whatever. But the documentary glosses over, which I guess in respect to the victim, but clearly like, this man, this he was on some Andrew Cunanan shit. Kai Lawrence was. Yeah. But the old man who was killed was trying to have sex with that man. Like, <laughs> yes. But, you know, hiring a prostitute is not grounds for being murdered. But the documentary doesn't really... It, it We spend too much time with that news anchor guy, Jessup. Oh. Oh, he's so annoying. It was... It's, it's uncomfortable because all of this this song and dance and lip service like you're lying that you thought that you cared about this person at all that you were trying to exploit for your own agenda oh i know what we were talking about with this movie is this idea of um like reality tv and exploiting these people like when you see this kid on site he seems unstable instantly i was uncomfortable instantly mm -hmm. and then you have like someone who's part of the production team for keeping up with the kardashians that this lady. really greasy woman who had him sign a contract to produce a reality show for him and he signed it using hieroglyphics uh -huh. and this lady still she took him, that she let him stay at her house let him stay at her house drove him from oakland to hollywood and uh, like <laughs> and doesn't really talk about I, I think she was trying to preserve her own intellect because you seem real stupid well she was very passively trying to make it seem like there was this team of people with her that were making these choices together but when she talks about he's at your house your the home you own or and live in and she said that's when we started to get nervous about him and it's like well <laughs> It, we, but that's what's so weird no one does any like background this guy didn't even have id there were so many red flags that they talk about that immediately they should have abandoned ship like how he checked into the roosevelt and downed a bottle of jim beam or whatever and pissed on the like in, in, on the sidewalk and got they got them kicked out of the roosevelt by the security at the hotel and it's like do you know how embarrassing that is why would you we the thing that on tv the thing that struck me the most was how there was no like just yeah exploiting this person because he's like going viral even though this person is clearly like probably dangerous but also like mentally unstable did you, like, when, when he's on fallon which is all really oh, that was so uncomfortable did you think of joker with 
Joaquin Phoenix and De Niro. <laughs> well, yeah, because he seems volatile. And then knowing that this documentary is about someone who killed someone, it's like, I can't believe that. Because even the Jimmy Kimmel. Oh, Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, you said Fallon. It was yes, Jimmy Kimmel. Kimmel. Even the Jimmy Kimmel employee who was in charge of getting Kai on the show, hearing him talk about it, I think he was the most authentic. Mm-hmm. But it was just like, yeah, people get thrust into the line. But I mean, that's how it is today, right? Anybody can make YouTube videos. Anyone can have a podcast. Anyone can go viral on any platform. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, yeah, like not everyone is built for that. And then. And clearly doing so he's, he's been doing some things. Yeah. You know, but the documentary doesn't get into really, I mean, cause there's no proof of any of it, but clearly Kai was probably like prostituting himself. And mm-hmm. so. But I only talked so long about it because people asked. Um, you watched Ali. Yes, I'd never seen it. Um, directed by Michael Mann from 2001, the first of Will Smith's three Oscar nominations. Uh, it's a little over two and a half hours. Jada's in it as his first wife. It's interesting, and I think that you can see that it was labor-intensive, everybody that was involved in this. But... Um, you don't think it's an Oscar-worthy performance? No, he's fine. You know, he lost to Denzel that year. He's fine. I mean, fine's not like Oscar-worthy. I mean, I th- I can see the work, and maybe that. It it feels like one of those movies where it's like, well, you have to nominate him, but oh, sure. uh, not like Jamie Foxx and Ray just a couple years later, for instance. But I liked it just fine. Uh, I you know what's inspiring is uh, listening to Muhammad Ali just him speaking and and oh they i've never seen it so well just i mean he says a lot of shit that i agree with like you know when he was a cute you know i remember growing up my dad saying like he was a draft dodger and it's like well you you expect this man to go die for the country uh i i was on board with everything that man was saying uh yeah it's fine but i watched it in anticipation of it's i think maybe the only michael mann film i hadn't seen in my lifetime and uh I'll be seeing Ferrari soon. So I thought his other major biopic I should see. You watched The Ninth Gate? I haven't seen this since renting it with my dad on VHS in 2000. And my dad hated it. And I liked Lena Olin. And she gets killed in it. And I remember being disappointed. Like, blah. But this is a a Polanski film uh, from 1999. Oh, with Woody Allen? No, with Johnny Depp. Oh. Woody Allen. Wait, who directed The Ninth Gate? Roman Polanski. Oh, sorry. You're getting in, confused. With the other major I'm problem. I'm getting confused. Sorry. Yeah, I was getting. Yeah, the other problematic director. Okay. <laughs> um. Yes, I think that it starts off really good. Uh, I, I think the end is interesting, but you know, it had. I, it's kind of a black comedy, and I like that. It's basically the Wicker Man, really, or Angel Heart. It's giving me shades of those, which are all films that I really like. Uh, Johnny Depp, I think, is uh, very young and handsome. Uh, I do love Lena Olin. Uh, Polanski's wife, Emmanuel Seigneur, is in it. Uh, Frank Langella is creepy. Uh, again, I think it maybe depends on too much of the viewer, the audience expected to understand what it's doing in a very truncated ending. But uh, I, yeah, I, I enjoyed rewatching this. The Solitude of Prime Numbers. Uh, I watched this in anticipation of uh, upcoming Venice as well. Severio Castenzo, uh, 2010 film. 
uh, I've seen his follow-up, Hungry Hearts, which Adam Driver won Best Actor for in Venice in 2014. And that is kind of a fun, depressing, overwrought melodrama with uh, Driver and Alba Rohrwacher. But uh, Alba starred in this other film he did first with uh, Luca Marinelli. And Isabella Rossellini uh, is in it, who I always like to see. I didn't really love this film. It follows two uh, troubled children for various reasons and how they keep kind of missing out on a relationship with each other throughout their lives and is nonlinear. And uh, I, I don't think that the payoff is worth it. I, Alvaro, uh, it looks like, because her character has an eating disorder, she... For the, for the last part of the film, I don't know what she had to go through to get ready for this role, but it, it she looks disturbing. It's clearly she prepared by slimming down to look like somebody with anorexia, but it is uh, Jessica Alba Rohrwacher. Uh, I not dolphin. There's an actor named Jessica Alba Rohr. No, Alba Rohrwacher. I didn't say Jessica. <laughs> Jessica Alba's. I thought you said Jessica Alba Rohrwacher. No, Alba Rohrwacher. Very notable Italian actress. Her sister, Alice, is a very notable director. Okay. But yeah, I, that, that was the only thing that I'll probably have a lasting impression of in that film. La- lastly, you watched Deconstructing Harry. Yeah, I haven't seen this since the year it came out. It's the one where Robin Williams is out of focus. Oh. And it's about a a writer named Harry played by Woody Allen and kind of uh, the reenactments of chapters of his life with other actors. So it's got a really great cast. Um, by the end of it, I, I think I liked it. I think some of the comedy feels very broad, uh, but it's entertaining. It's also one of the few uh, major, uh, the, the, uh, an actual black person is in it. There's a black prostitute named Cookie. That, that is there there's one line that i was like "Ooh, this is not good because he's trying to have this existential conversation with her with cookie woody woody is and he says something like mentioned something about black holes and she's like i know what that is that's my profession i'm like oh, oh. oh my god that is an off color joke to be sure um but yeah it's just okay let's take a break Unfortunately, there is an entry in the obituary section. William David Friedkin died at the age of 87. He is a notable director. Very notable. And I know that he directed The Exorcist Mm -hmm. and Bug. Oh, yes. And The French Connection. Mm -hmm. To Live and Die in L.A. Yeah. Look at you pulling these. That's out of your about head. it. Okay, that's all I can conjure right now. <laughs> he did a movie with Sigourney. Uh, oh, um, called the Dead in the No Dead in the Head. Uh, <laughs> Deal of the Century. Deal of the Century. <laughs> yes, which nobody seems involved with that film seems to like it. That's a good Sunday afternoon um, movie, though. Hint, but uh, I mean, I guess he's best known for The Exorcist, right? Yeah, probably. I mean, but that, his film, The French Connection, won five Academy Awards. He also did uh, The Boys in the Band. Mm-hmm. Oh, Cruising, which yeah. we've uh, reviewed. Killer Joe, a black comedy I have not seen. You haven't seen Killer Joe? I don't. Recall. I've tried to put that on several times. You know, I was like, I've watched that. Really? Yeah. 
I don't remember. Oh, it's so good. Anyhow, you want to share uh, five of your favorite Friedkin films with us. Uh, I, you know, I've seen everything except his debut, that Sonny and Cher movie, Good Times. I've never seen that. And uh, Rampage starring Michael Bean, which maybe I'll catch up with this week. Well, what's your number five? Actually, he has so many good films. I have a list of 10. Ugh. But I'll just run through them quick. Because there, you can avoid like exercise. Quickly, number 10. 10, I'd have deal of the century because I'll... I'll I'll stand behind the critique of that film, but it's worth watching. Nine. Uh, Jade with Linda Fiorentino. Eight. Uh, Sorcerer. Seven. The Exorcist. Six. Um, to Live and Die in L.A. Five. The French Connection. Four. Killer Joe. Three. Bug. Two. Boys in the Band. One. Can you guess? No, because I already forgot the one. Cruising. Oh, cruising. <laughs> my favorite. My my personal favorite. Well, then you can say a little bit about cruising if you'd like. Oh, no. I, I mean, it's just what a gift we were given and the community rallied against it and not wanting to see an aspect, not uh, the community in totality. I don't, you know, that's the thing about any people that are othered is that suddenly any representation is supposed to speak for the entire community, which is something we don't do to, you know, white people. Uh, <laughs> like, and, and, and therefore everything that we create is vulnerable because of that. I don't know. All right. Well, today's secret film was my choice. This is a film that I've had on my, cause I keep a list of, um, future secret movie ideas. And this one I put on my list a while ago when we did the poll for old bitty, old bitty horror, old bitty, like horror hag type movies. Cause whatever happened on Alice one, I think whatever happened on, on Alice one, it's also highly enjoyable, but someone had brought to my attention the 1964 film lady in a cage way back then mm -hmm. so i had it on my list and then recently two people commented about lady in a cage i'm not sure why so i thought well let's watch it and i looked it up and on imdb the video that popped up was olivia de havilland who's the star of the film talking about how like the video opens with hi i'm olivia de havilland and i have a very important thing to talk to you about and she's talking about the movie and how disturbing it is and how it's so important for people to watch so i knew nothing about this film i assumed it was about a woman trapped in like a bad marriage trying to get out so then i tell you i want to watch it and you're like oh yeah um i own it of i own it and then you say oh well it's about a woman in a cage so then i thought oh so like they put her in like an animal cage in the basement but that's not uh what this movie is first of all this is one of the most frustrating movies i've watched in a very long time i was screaming at the screen <laughs> i was so worked up um just for like the like the kind of movie you should watch with people this is like a five out of five yes um i've only seen it once i remember buying the dvd and it arriving on my doorstep in the mail and being so excited because it had it had been unavailable, I think, for a while. And uh, yeah, it I all the frustration did come back. Uh. <laughs> so the premise, a woman trapped in a home elevator is terrorized by a group of vicious hoodlums. So Olivia de Havilland is the woman. She's a widow. She's rich. Her adult son lives with her. 
We know that a couple of months prior, she had hip surgery. So she walks with a cane and she had an elevator installed in her private residence. So when the film starts, we see her son, who in the beginning, we weren't sure, is this her son? Like, Mm -hmm. I thought it was her husband because he looked a little rough. And then she looks, they look like they could be husband and wife. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The disparity is not great. But he's writing her a letter and then he's trying to get the hell out of the house telling her that he's going away for like a business trip. And she even comments like, God, you packed a lot of stuff for like a weekend trip. And his behavior makes it seem like maybe he's running away from her. We get us, uh, the camera shows us a snippet from the letter. And the snippet we can see it, he says something about killing himself. Mm -hmm. So we know that this is not just a weekend work trip, but Olivia gets in her, so he leaves and, but she's so oblivious to anything being wrong. She just gets in her elevator to go back to her room and the power goes out because like how someone hits the power line with a ladder. So now elevator, we see it move once in a complete rotation. It is so slow. It's very slow. But so the power goes out and she's stuck in this elevator, like halfway between the first and the second floor. So it's a considerable drop if she were to jump out. Okay. So this elevator has an alarm. Which basic, because it's, you know, it's 19, early 1960s, there's no telephone in the elevator, which we can talk about, but there is this alarm that goes out. It's hardwired to this like bell on the exterior of her home. And something else we need to talk about is she lives on the busiest street in the world. Yep. Mm-hmm. It is. It has to be seen to be believed that <laughs> the amount of traffic is just just the few glimpses we get of the street in the traffic is stressful it is very stressful there's also construction happening so it's very loud outside and it's like like beginning of the day so no one can hear this alarm going off and, and it's battery operated so she needs to conserve it because it's going to run out and but you know it opens with some really bizarre shots i'm going to talk about okay. that so I know we're not supposed to use the word wino, but this man is a full-on wino. So this homeless gentleman uh, hears the alarm. Mm-hmm. So he walks to her like side door and sees in the kitchen, in her spice cabinet, some damn cooking sherry. So he decides to break in. But when he breaks the glass to get in, the phone's ringing. So Olivia can't hear it. So this guy is in the kitchen trying to open this cooking sherry and he breaks it. And that's when she knows someone's in her house. So she starts screaming for help and he's not helping her because he's such a damn alcoholic derelict that he, when he catches uh, a glimpse of the wine cabinet, he just goes crazy. Mm -hmm. Starts drinking the wine. He breaks the bottle. He breaks the bottle to sip from the broken bottle. Then we see him walk away with every pocket with a bottle of wine in it and then this expensive toaster and you you notice because he got drunk he started doing his rant his street ranting well he has a tattoo or something on his hand that says repent yeah so he's he's looney tunes but anyway he goes to the local pawn shop to pawn this expensive toaster and who do we find there a group of hoodlums and the group is led by james Mm con who i believe his debut and they spot this wino and they're like, wait a minute, where did he get all these bottles of wine and this super expensive toaster? He, he, he found a spot, so we need to follow him. So they trace his ass. After the pawn shop, the wino goes to visit a lady. Who, uh, 
who I remember, but in the cast list, I'm like, oh, her name's Sade in this. It's, it's not. Sadie, it's... <laughs> played by Anne Southern. Mm -hmm. And she's very self-deprecating. She refers to herself as a heavy woman yeah. more than once. And they are mean to her, too. They call her a pig. And they call her fat. She's not she looks fat. She, she looks, looks like Elizabeth Taylor. She looks like kind of like a broke down version of Elizabeth Taylor to me. She's got that Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf wig on, yeah. But she's not fat, so I think that's interesting. But anyway, this lady is kind of a, a, a hustler. I mean... We both posted something on our Instagram stories. She has a line where she's like, I'm just a hustler. But um, he goes to her saying like, girl, I found the spot. I need help because we need to clean this house out. It's like a lady stuck in an elevator and she has silver and all the things. And you need to keep me away from the wine. And I need someone <laughs> to supervise me because if I walk past that wine cabinet, it's curtains. So she goes, okay, let's go. And that guy's played by Jeff Corey, by the way, who is in many notable films, including including Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So they get to the house and she's like, yep, we hit the jackpot. <laughs> but of course, James Caan and his two buddies, um, Rafael Campos and Jennifer Billingsley play the other two. They followed them there. So they come in and basically take, it's like a hostile takeover. They're holding the wino and the hustler lady kind of like loosely captive, which we can get to. They load up Olivia de Havilland's car, which is parked in the garage with all her shit, all her silver and gold shit. And then they decide, well, we have to kill the witnesses. So they kill the wino. The hustler lady gets away. And now it's, Olivia's turn. But right before James Conn's going to kill Olivia, the Raphael Campos guy says, hey, wait a minute, I found this letter. So then we go back to the opening of the film, that letter her son wrote. Mm -hmm. The letter basically says, like, she's an overbearing mom. She's controlling him with money. He wants to live his own life. So he is out of here. And that he's going to call her shortly to ask for her to release him. And if she doesn't say yes, he's going to kill himself. So he wants her to say yes, and he wants half of what's in the safe in the living room. So now James Conn is like, well, we can't leave yet because there's a bunch of money in a safe. So he doesn't kill Olivia. But earlier in the film, the hustler lady had called the pawn shop owner, who's also a crook, and said, child, you need to get down to one, two, three, four Main Street because we hit the jackpot. So that pawn shop owner, he shows up with his goons in taxi cabs to clean out this thing. So when James Conn realizes that there's someone out there messing with their stuff, they go out there and the three hoodlums get beat up. And this is Olivia's chance to get away. So the James Conn climbed up into the elevator using a ladder. So when they leave, she tries to jump down on the ladder and is not successful. So she falls to the ground and like breaks her leg, breaks her arm, but she is able to crawl outside. James Conn catches her before she can get help. She ends up stabbing him in the eyes. So he's blind, <laughs> but his two helpers don't notice because he sent them upstairs to. Well, no, they're taunting him. They are, but they're also looking for the safe. They're not really paying attention to him. Olivia is ultimately able to crawl out to the street. 
And then because we're on the busiest street in the world, there are all these cars driving by and James Conn is grabbing her. But remember, he can't see because she gouged his eyes out. So he falls into the street and a car runs over him and kills him. And the police are able to apprehend the other two. The end. Mm -hmm. There is so much to talk about in this movie. I have so many notes. This shit was wild as hell. I'll let you say what you need to say first. Oh, okay. Well, uh, it was directed by somebody that did a lot of television, um, both before and after, Walter Grauman. Uh, You need to, at the end of this conversation, I invite you to read the tagline, uh, the poster of the film he did after this with Suzanne Plachette called A Rage to Live. A Rage to Live? Yeah. Uh, But anyway, you know, I love this setup. Olivia. So in 1964, Olivia de Havilland replaces Joan Crawford in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. And if my memory serves correct, they had to like rush her the script in wherever she lived in the mountains in Switzerland. So she comes back to Hollywood. And I'm assuming, I don't know for sure. I'm guessing that Lady in a Cage was filmed after Hush Hush because of that uh, setup. But it's also giving me, and I do prefer this film and this performance, but Barbara Stanwyck in Sorry, Wrong Number, where she's that bedridden shrew who hears a, <laughs> her murder on the phone. Uh, love. If you haven't seen Sorry, Wrong Number, highly, highly recommended. But also Michael Haneke's uh, Funny Games, the both versions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we brought up, we, we can, as the conversation goes, Panic Room, I think, is something to bring up. But there's this also little-known film that was recently restored about a decade ago now called Private Property, from 1960 directed by leslie stevens starring his wife kate manx who i think maybe killed herself anyway that is has a very similar vibe about kind of two they're these are white people uh hoodlums that show up at this woman's home in the hollywood hills and are sexually sinister with her okay i have 10 minutes to get through all these notes so the opening credits are very interesting because we get all of these shots of like bad things happening like we see this little black girl with roller skates on like like smashing into someone's body then we see like like a couple making out in a car we see a trash can being blown up a random dead dog in the street just like dried out then every time we hear the radio it's all doom and gloom Mm -hmm. so i think this movie was definitely for the time like the early 60s i think it was sort of like the world's changing outside. Yeah, the world's changing and we're paranoid. So I think it captured that very well. So it's a very good setup to what eventually happens. Um, the We have to talk about this street she lives on because it's like, it's just a two-lane road. So mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't appear to be like a major thoroughfare. It's not like they're driving down Western Avenue in LA, but just back-to-back cars. It's People are careening through there like that stretch of La Brea. Yes, like where you go through like Baldwin Hill. Yeah. yeah, like they're driving fast, but it's back to back. It's almost like a video game. Mm-hmm. It was insane. Okay, I was thinking this movie, Olivia de Havilland's performance is OTT. Oh, yes. She's, the yeah. way she's reciting these lines, and you made a good point that because she's stuck in one space, she really has to try to figure out a way to... And no co-stars. She's trying to right. serve. Mm-hmm. And she is, but it's it's camp. But I was thinking, you know who could remake this? I think Jinx Monsoon. Oh my God! Would yeah. make a good uh, whatever her name is in this movie. Uh, Cornelia Hilliard. 
I think that's right. <laughs> okay, her, her yeah. pressing this alarm reminded me of, and you, because I grew up in LA in the 80s, every car had an alarm. Mm -hmm. Like that's when car alarms became popular. And my distinct memory of car alarms in the 80s were that these alarms would go off and just go on and, yep. on, and no one did would go anything. check. No one did anything. Mm -hmm. So watching this movie, because it was like, God, no one, but it's like, it doesn't matter. No one's going to do anything anyway. Well, who wants to get involved? In, there's, there's this alarm ringing and it says elevator emergency. Please call the police. It's like you are invited. And that's the mechanism of the film. You are inviting people into your home to yeah, know because, that you're vulnerable. Because they have to get access to a landline, right? It's 1960, whatever. So you can't. In fact, even if you weren't having an emergency, people would recognize that you are a mark. Yeah. So that's <laughs> unnerving. Um, Part of Olivia de Havilland's performance being so OTT is like we get not only her talking to herself externally, <laughs> but we get her internal dialogue. And then she likes, it may, it's made to seem like, is she like a writer or because she writes poetry and recites her own lines. She and, does that Barbara Streisand thing where she's like, who wrote that? Oh, I did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right away you hate her. It's like, God, lady. James Kahn he is wearing all of the makeup yes all is. of it and he is a very hairy man so from the neck down it's all hamburger meat but then he's he, clean shaven and then he's there are a lot of close-ups and it's just this caked on foundation and then james Kahn has textured hair like his mm -hmm. hair is curly mm -hmm. but in the movie it's straight i don't know what they did to his hair it, it looks like he has a relaxer it's maybe, shellacked to his but head. it is such a jarring uh yeah he he looks like a frosted mini wheat but i think he did a good job in the role he did he sinister when that nylon's on his head he kind of looks like brando yes and then he's wearing jesus sandals which every time i saw his feet i would laugh <laughs> yeah that was an interesting choice you know what's weird is uh, speaking of hush hush sweet charlotte that same year debut of bruce dern so you have james Conn and bruce dern coming up in these old bitty horror movies Olivia tells James' character, you're one of the many bits of awful produced by the welfare state. <laughs> oh, yeah, which is so frustrating. It's like, okay, so she, when push comes to shove, she can be motivated to scream. Well, we, we, need, we need to end with why this hurt she in particular is so frustrating. But um, That's a good line. When the wino, when James Kahn decides that they have to kill everyone, they put like a sack over the wino's head. Mm -hmm. And knock him out and knock his ass out and when he wakes up he thinks he's blind because everything is dark like he doesn't realize his head's covered mm -hmm. <laughs> okay i think one of them so two of the most frustrating things one is olivia's character's behavior but also these hoodlums are just dicking around in this house they this woman is lives on a major street it's busy as hell. It's broad daylight. Clearly has a maid. Clearly has someone who visits her house, clearly receives packages, and they are just taking their time. At one point, they have like an orgy in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, and that kid, um, Raphael, he was married to Dinah Washington before this movie. Yeah. The, and then she died. <laughs> um, I think they divorced before. Or divorced. She died. It, it was driving me crazy how they're just dicking around. And then. It's during the bathtub orgy scene that they have the wino and the heavy woman locked in a room, mm -hmm. but they're not really locked in the room. No. She just walks out and escapes. Mm -hmm. So they're just, I, I, I wish they weren't like so cr like 
crazy seeming kind of well they're very scared you know they're very much like um trump supporters at the insurrection like you did a lot of damage without having any real plan oh god uh so this is like a precursor to like hanukkah i thought the wino looked like travis barker <laughs> oh yeah oh jeff court he does a good job okay olivia's character she's just so like she just seems so weak and fragile oh, she's pathetic and it's so hard to watch i mean this is why you have to watch this movie and you have to watch it with people because i was screaming at the screen there were so many times when she could have like done something and then at the point where she's ready to actually like fight she goes stone age here i come oh yeah. <laughs> and what she's done is she's unscrewed these pieces from the elevator like these two metal rods so we think they're going to be like these sharp sturdy rods and when she goes to stab um james con in the back them things fold like red vines <laughs> it was so disappointing she's screaming die 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 um when james jumps in the elevator i just couldn't believe that that wasn't because when he jumps in there it's like he's going to kill her mm -hmm. and she doesn't try to fight and then even after he reads the letter to her and she's really just like she she just well first she passes out mm -hmm. <laughs> she faints <laughs> but that's at the point where i start to feel bad for her not that she deserves any of this treatment at all but, no no uh, that's where i i started feeling kind of i felt bad for her at that point <laughs> when the the moment when olivia realizes what she's done to her son it's because she's been hit in the head after her first attempt to escape out the front door and so her vision is kind of blurry and when she's looking at james con she thinks she sees her son whose name is malcolm and she's like calling for him and then she finally says like release re like release me from your love and that's when she realizes like oh my god i'm a monster like i've just kept my son like i've held him back I thought that was pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Or when she has the epiphany where she's defending her relationship with her son to James Caan, who's taunting her because his group kind of figures out that her kid might be gay. Also mm -hmm. based on the letter. And she's like, we are, we're closer than any two. She's about to say lovers. And then it, and she realizes she, their relationship's unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So five out of five, as far as like fun factor, I would give this movie three out of five because I think the story, <laughs> the one Olivia's performance is OTT. I think the hoodlums are a little too discombobulated and crazy. I think what we needed to really rein this in is some sort of time limit. Mm. And I think the best way to have done that is because the son is saying, I'm going to call you back. And if you don't agree to my terms, I'll kill myself. Maybe there should have been like, I'm going to call you back at 3 p.m. And we see a clock and we know that she only has so much time before she can get out of this situation and pick up the phone to prevent her son from killing himself. I, I feel like I needed something to like give her more motivation mm -hmm. because it's not until the 11th hour that she realizes what the letter was. And that doesn't even seem to motivate her. It just makes her more pathetic. Well, it's like it, her steam, if it wasn't gone before, seems to run out a bit. But yeah, and I feel like it should have been the opposite. Yeah, And that is, but that is the point where she finds, she flings herself out of that cage. Oh, and we didn't even bring up Scatman Crothers. Scatman Crothers is in it. I, who is in his 50s and is the youngest I think I've seen him, uh, plays an assistant to this 
crooked pawn shop yeah, owner. who is also integral to the to the plot what would you give this movie i would give it three out of five uh i think it's interesting that ann southern and james Conn would both later work for curtis harrington in games and the killing kind respectively but i think there's also there's some interesting metaphorical subtext at play here because to me olivia reads as this lady in the cage as a metaphor for wealthy white women that are stuck there that that are close to the top of the hierarchy but are stuck in this gilded cage well and think they're exempt i mean you know it's just like socioeconomic stuff like she thinks she's exempt from because even like you said having this alarm on that like you're just a sitting duck Mm -hmm. and yeah she's living in this bubble having all these things that are really unnecessary and frivolous like the gold baby cup and her house is filled with like expensive things and and meanwhile outside you know, and I find it interesting that they chose to use a young black girl to be kind of towing a bum with her roller skate. Uh, but it's it's really juxtaposed with stuff from the 50s before. Like if, if I, I know you haven't seen Odds Against Tomorrow, but how that opens with Robert Ryan being racist to the young black children on the street, you know. Well, we need to stop. But um, you you wanted me to read the. Oh, we didn't even pick up Panic Room as the modern version, kind of, of Lady in the Cage. You wanted me to read this quote on the cover of A Rage to Live? Yeah, don't you think that's funny? Okay, here it is. Take it easy, Grace. Think of a good lie to tell your husband. Tell him you're late because the car broke down. Tell him anything. Even make love to him. After all, you need him more than other men. (laughs) Read what it's about. Uh, Suzanne Plachette in this Rage to Live. Oops. Hold on. See, I'm under pressure and I'm not not performing at my highest level. Uh, This movie is about, so A Rage to Live is about a woman's sexual compulsions (laughs) threaten to destroy her marriage. (laughs) And that's the tagline. Uh, Well, we have like two minutes left. Oh. What do we have coming up this week? Oh, Blue Beetle is uh, this week. Oh, Blue Beetle. Uh, Something I was more excited about. What was it? Um... Oh, well, Landscape with Invisible Hand, which we already saw. Strays is this week. Uh, um, You know that there's another new Tiffany Haddish movie, Back on the Strip, which I haven't received anything about, some new distribution company. Oh. uh, Which has an interesting cast. But yeah, hopefully it should be a more quiet week. All right. Well, that's all I have. How about you? That's your it. Bye. (laughs) Ta-ta. Thank <laughs> you.